Welcome to an extended version of Immigrant Stories. My interview today is with Klaus Penzel. Klaus was a little boy in Bremen, Germany during Hitler's rise to power. In 1941, he was 12. That's when his childhood ended and the bombing of his city began. By the time he was 15, he was going to high school in the morning and manning anti-aircraft guns with his classmates in the afternoon. At 16, he was drafted as a soldier in a desperate and retreating German army. We join Klaus as he describes the situation. What was it like growing up as a young man in Hitler's Germany? Well, uh, it's not so much the Hitler years that I remember. So, of course, we all had to be members of the Hitler Youth. That was compulsory. But what I really remember more strongly are the World War II years and my experience during those uh, uh, years of war. Tell me about those years, would you? Yes. Uh, uh, my father was the pastor of a large uh, urban congregation in the north German port city of Bremen. And so I remember vividly uh, the first air raids uh, Bremen suffered at the beginning of uh, 1941. I remember I was then 12 years old. I remember the sirens awakening us at night and the horrible no noise of the anti-aircraft guns and our almost flying downstairs to reach the safety of a basement shelter. And uh, when I heard for the first time the screeching noise of a falling bomb, I fainted falling from my chair and moments later, I heard my father laughing good-naturedly. You little dumbhead, he said, uh, uh, the bomb you hear won't kill you. And he explained to me that a falling bomb travels faster than sound, which was my first physics lesson. But of course, I now worried about the bomb I did not hear. And so uh, soon thereafter, I was sent by myself to the safety of a town in southern Germany where I lived with host, fam host families, and I finally ended up with uh, relatives in a suburb of Dresden, the beautiful city on the Elbe River, where I attended the Latin school. But then normal school life ended for me when I was 15 years old, because early in 1944, the high school students of my age were ordered to take over the big anti-aircraft guns protecting the German cities. Of course, we were not real soldiers. We were too young. We were called Air Force helpers. And so in the morning, our teachers would still come out to our barracks and continuing to instruct us in German, Latin, and so forth. But in the afternoon and for the rest of the days, we were treated and drilled like soldiers. Now, up to that point, uh, Dresden had been fortunate. It had not, been, had not suffered any major air raid like most of the other major German cities, so that we actually saw action only once. And I remember proudly that uh, we youngsters at that time gave a better account of ourselves with our big guns blazing away than our nervous adult superiors. 
But then shortly before Christmas, all anti-aircraft guns were removed from uh, Dresden to the western and to the eastern fronts. And then a few weeks later, uh, two terrible air raids during the night of February 13 destroyed Dresden, at least the inner city of Dresden, and killed some uh, 30,000 uh, civilians. So the exact number probably will never be known because uh, Dresden at the time was crowded uh, with uh, uh, refugees trying to flee from the advancing Soviet armies. And I might add that among those ref refugees were my parents and my two younger siblings. Uh, they had arrived in Dresden at the railway station on the 13th of February. But instead of staying at the railway station, waiting for the next train, they fortunately left to see the relatives uh, in a suburb of Dresden, and that's how they survived. If you're just joining us, you're listening to an extended version of Immigrant Stories. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher, and my interview today is with Klaus Penzel. Klaus was a teenager in Germany during World War II. Where were you? And at I that was time? Uh, near Dresden in the labor service, which was a paramilitary service required for of it to be taken by all young men prior to being drafted in the, into the regular army. And I actually was then drafted into the regular army at the end of March, and I was stationed at uh, uh, at. This, at the outskirts of the city of Weimar in the very heart of Germany. And I don't know whether uh, you would be interested if I tell you quickly about uh, that memorable Easter Sunday. Uh, uh, in the morning, I helped to dig out uh, the debt in the ruins of a suburb after the previous night's air raid. And in the afternoon, I was ordered by a high-ranking German officer to pick up his laundry in a sinister place hidden in the forest some several miles distant, which much later I learned was the concentration camp Buchenwald near right. Weimar. Uh, that's where I picked up the laundry, uh, which of course was a somewhat traumatic, spooky experience for me. Uh, what was that like? What, when well, you say it was spooky, uh, describe the... Well, for one thing, you know, I was totally unprepared. When I finally reached uh, uh, the, the place where I would have to pick up the laundry, all the times, by the way, I was hearing the rumbling noise of the advancing American army artillery fire, and I was all by myself. I was standing next to a barbed wire, and the guard there, uh, who, broke, who spoke broken German, uh, told me that whenever they laugh too much, he said, too loud, we shoot into the camp. Uh, and I could hear eerie laughter coming from behind the barbed wire. So I was, of course, totally uh, ignorant of what this camp might be like or who was going to be kept there. And that all happened on, on Easter Sunday. And two weeks later, I was uh, captured, uh, take, 
uh, taken a prisoner of war by soldiers of General Patton's Third Army, hands up, were actually the first English words I ever heard. How old were you? Uh, 16 years then. And uh, so uh, uh, in the prisoner of war camp, actually uh, near the Rhine River, uh, where we spent much time lying in rain-soaked muddy fields, I collapsed, but I was nursed, uh, nursed back to life in the camp hospital. And as I said, I was 16 years old when at the end of July I was finally released from the camp And again, I should say that I will always remember the truck ride out of the camp to freedom because there was just one other boy on the truck. The previous day he had tried to flee, had been shot through the head, and now lying on the truck floor, unprotected, was slowly bleeding to death. And so I uh, <laughs> later told my uh, teenage sons that I had trouble understanding them because, as I said to them, uh, World War II had helped me to get safely through the teenage phase. That is, I never was a teenager in the yeah. proper sense well, of the I, word. I, I wouldn't call that safe. You, well, you must have been really traumatized by all of that. I was not traumatized, but uh, it... Uh, It, uh, these were memories which uh, you know just stayed with me, and as it happened, you, I was always, I always took it in stride. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to an extended version of Immigrant Stories. I'm your host Walter Gallagher, and my interview today is with Klaus Penzel. Klaus was born and raised in Germany and was a teenager during World War II. Explain to me how how I mean what you've just described would have uh, would have traumatized most people how did you stay positive and 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 not fearful and it's it's really difficult to say because at the time i did not have a religious face uh, you know i could draw upon that came later but uh, it, it was just something that one had come to take for granted at the end of four or five years of war There was to be shooting, there you were to be taken a prisoner, and uh, you just uh, continued and did your best uh, to survive. On that day when you were attacked, when you, you had to use the anti-aircraft guns, uh, who was attacking you? The, the, the British or the American planes. And I mentioned that uh, on the night of, during the night of February 13, uh, Tracen suffered two air raids. The first was by the, as we now know, the first was by the British Air Force and the second by the American Air Force. Uh, and I don't know how many planes altogether did attack Dresden at that time. But your parents had passed through Dresden on that They that were very passing afternoon. through Tristan on that very day. And uh, so it was very lucky that they remembered that uh, a niece living in a suburb of Tristan had her birthday that day. And that persuaded them to leave the main railway station, which during the following night was terribly bombed and totally devastated, leave it And, uh, leave and, and go out to the suburb, and thus they survived. Did you hear the attack? Were you close enough to hear Dresden I being bombed? I did bombed? not. I did not. I was about 30 miles uh, outside of Dresden, and 
it's surprising that we didn't hear uh, what happened. Uh, perhaps we were soundly asleep, most likely. But then, of course, the next day, one of my comrades, uh, his family was living in Tristan, and I remember how he got permission to leave for Tristan to search for his family. So these were uh, pretty difficult times. Uh, uh, and, of course, uh, I might add that uh, the ch my father's church, our, uh, our uh, home, and the whole parish district had been totally destroyed in an air raid in August of 1944. So the start after the war in Bremen was difficult, but once the schools opened in 1945 during a terribly cold winter, I went back to my high school in Bremen, from which I graduated in the spring of 1948. And then I immediately went to the university, majoring in theology because I wanted to become a minister following in my father's footsteps. And I also became active in the German YMCA. How old were you when the war was over, when the war ended? Yeah, when the war ended, I was still 16 years old. So uh, the war took care of the beautiful teenage years. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think that uh, we were affected by this experience and it, and it keep, uh, kept on showing later in our life. So how did it manifest itself in your life? Well, for one thing, uh, I have never been able, and it may sound silly, to enjoy fireworks. Hmm. I have a son who is just crazy about fireworks, even as an adult, and who will set up the most wonderful display of fireworks. I withdraw. I cannot take it. It's uh, the experience of those falling bombs and, uh, and the uh, anti-aircraft guns and so forth. Uh, uh, thunderstorms do affect me in a similar way. So you, you have these reoccurrence of memories from... It's from just instinctively that, uh, uh, that I th am reminded of this uh, childhood experience. If you're just joining us, you're listening to an extended version of Immigrant Stories, I'm your host, Walter Gallagher, and my interview today is with Klaus Penzel. Klaus was a young man in Germany during World War II. Talk a little bit more about being prisoner of war. What was that like? Well, uh, there, there are these memories, fleeting memories, uh, after we had been... Uh, after I had been taken a prisoner by the advancing columns, tank columns of General Patton's army, we were placed on top of the tanks as they advance, advance towards the German lines, which obviously is against the international, the Geneva Convention, but, uh, uh, and the Germans fortunately were not fighting back so that we were not in danger of being shot at sitting at, at the top of these tanks. So you were a target. So we were a target, uh, but uh, the fighting had ceased, and, and that was very fortunate. And then uh, later, uh, I remember that we were gathered together and for the first time watched American soldiers eating lunch, huge pieces of white bread which Germans eat on a Sunday as something special. And soldiers, of course, always were being fed the hard black bread. 
And as we were watching them, we also were watching two Germans, a younger uh, prisoner, a younger German and an older German, members of the SS, who had been ordered by the Americans to dig their own grave. And so we just stood there watching as these poor fellows were digging uh, what they had been told would be their grave. And when they, when they, had, been, when they had finished digging the grave, they were uh, shooed away, and we were ordered to put all of our extraneous belongings into that hole. <laughs> and then the American soldiers set fire to it. That's another experience, yes. <laughs> And then finally we ended up in that prisoner of war camp uh, uh, at Bad Kreuznach, uh, which was one of the huge camps where all the multitudes of German prisoners were gathered together. So these SS guys got reprieved, but they must have... Yes, but the, for, for a they while they thought it was, <laughs> was the end. <laughs> and the younger of the two was very... Firm, and the older man, I think, cried a little bit, but then they were sent away. It's amazing what we can do to one another, isn't it? Yes, I know. It doesn't matter who you are to, yes. to be subjected to yes. that kind of treatment. Yes. You know, we're used used to hearing the American side of the story, but the germ from the German perspective, there was a lot out of. Dresden, for example. Yes, I know. But uh, now, of course, we have accounts. Historians have given us accounts uh, of both what happened on the American side and on the German side, on the Russian side and on the German side, so that one is uh, able to gain a pretty complete picture of those incredible years. When you were leaving that camp that day in the back of the truck, this young man, did the young man in the, ba in the bottom of the truck die? I would assume he, he bled slowly to death. Why, hasn't, why hadn't anybody tried to help him? Well, I think uh, the truck was taking him to a hospital, but he was with, uh, unguard, unprotected, lying on the floor, and this was a bumpy dirt road with, with his head time and again hitting the floor. So I actually had seen him the previous day trying to uh, escape, climbing across the barbed wire, and then the guards beginning to shoot at him as if they were hunting a rabbit. He obviously had uh, gone mad uh, because, uh, you know, he shouldn't have done it. But uh, they, So he was crazy. He was crazy, and uh, they shot him, and... And then he ended up on the same track as I did, except I was leaving for life, and he was leaving for death. And if he hadn't tried to escape, he... He probably would have been released the next day together with me, yeah. <laughs> so that uh, is one of those other experiences that I remember from these last days of my playing soldier. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to an extended version of Immigrant Stories. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher, and my interview today is with Klaus Penzel. So how did you, how did you overcome the depression that comes with that, seeing those things? I was not depressed ever. Really? No. How, talk about it, it, that. It is strange. Yes, you keep asking me. It is strange that that uh, one uh, does take it in stride, almost as if one is watching a film of which one is not really a part. That's the way I try to explain it. 
I've, I've heard that from other people, that very same analogy. Uh, yes. It was like watching a movie that you weren't part of. Yes. Uh, it's very strange. Perhaps the war did make many of us more insensitive than we would have been without the war experience later in life. Or we had to, we had to regain our sensitivity taught human suffering and uh, the sad aspects of life. I would imagine it made you a better father. I don't think you were insensitive to your children, were you? Uh, that is true, but on the other hand, I no, that is true, but on the other hand, uh, uh, not having ha had a real childhood, not having had a real use, I uh, was uh, inclined to keep my distance uh, some distance to the children. Uh, uh, perhaps that's the way I should put it. So what's your attitude about war, having Well, no more it? war. <laughs> no more war. But uh, I realize, of course, that, uh, as you know, there's the just war theory, that a war can be just if, it, if as an evil, it helps to prevent a greater evil. And so the second word was often uh, used as an example of a just war because it certainly helped to prevent, it was evil, the war on, both, uh, on the German side, but I think to some extent also on the side of the Allies, uh, but it did help to prevent a much greater evil. Yeah, it's hard to think about it as, as, as a necessary evil. No. Yeah. Well, and then I, uh, I just continue to say that uh, that the great turning point of my life came in, in the summer of 1950. What happened then? I was selected for a three-month study tour of the United States under a program that was sponsored by the United States State Department and at the time... Uh, was called Program for the Re-Education of the Germans. That uh, was in 1950. And what, what, was, what were they doing? What was re-educating a German? What well, uh, under this program, uh, several thousand Germans from all walks of life were brought to the United States there to study the, the workings of a functioning democracy there to learn how to be a good Democrat <laughs> and not a Nazi any longer. And of course, uh, these uh, were three unforgettable summer months for me when I traveled from New York to Washington, D.C., to Chicago, to Iowa, to Minneapolis, everywhere observing the youth work of the American churches and of the YMCA. And uh, I, one experience I still remember most vividly, uh, on the morning of one of the last days in June, I was standing in the bathroom of the YMCA in Washington, D.C., when somebody burst through the door shouting, the president has ordered American troops into Korea. And this, of course, at the end of June 1950, was the beginning of the Korean War, which soon would turn the former enemy nations, Germany and Japan, into valuable allies of the United States 
in its Cold War confrontation with the Soviet Union. And it was symptomatic that when a few weeks later I was flown back to Germany, the program under which I had come to the United States had already been renamed. No longer a program for the re-education of the Germans. Its new name was Cultural Exchange Program. <laughs> <laughs> and I should uh, perhaps also mention that uh, when I applied for the American visa in Germany, I was asked the question, were you a member of the Nazi party? Three years later, I would pl apply again for a visa, for an American visa, when this question had disappeared and had been replaced by the new question, are you a member of the Communist Party? That was Klaus Penzel. Klaus returned to the United States in 1953 to attend the Union Theological Seminary in New York City. It was there that he earned his master's and his Ph.D. in theology. He went on to teach at Dartmouth, where he met his wife, Pat. He then took a teaching position at Southern Methodist University in the Perkins School of Theology. It was there that he taught for 33 years. Klaus and his wife, Pat, raised five children together. They were preparing to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary when Pat died. Klaus lives in Carbondale with his son, Tom, and Tom's wife, Liz, and Klaus's grandchildren. To hear part two of Klaus's story, please go to kdnk.org, click on Public Affairs at the top of the page, and then scroll down to Immigrant Stories. It's there that you'll find Klaus's story and ten other interviews. Thank you for listening, and a special thanks to Klaus Penzel and others like him who are willing to share their remarkable stories.